So tonight is about the inner critic, which none of you will know anything about, that inner <laughs> judge, jury, the inner voice that uh, either reminds us of our cringeworthy moments in life where we failed or catastrophizes bad outcomes or especially compares us against imaginary they, them, who are doing better than us, who are always confident and always happy while we're anxious and sometimes depressed. The inner critic are the messages we internalized starting with the earliest socializing messages we received from our parents. The messages that the parents verbalized to us as a way to present some form of guidance of behavior like don't throw things at your sister or brother, don't pull the cat's tail, don't belch in public, don't run down the hall, don't, you know, eat the cookie before you have your meal, all that stuff, the, uh, the guiding, regulating, instructive um, information. And children, their sole job is to manage their relationship with their caretakers. That's how they say a lot. So when we're alone as children without the caretaker, the child around two or three starts a practice of what's known as private speech. Private speech is words that the child says aloud but is not really directing those words to an adult. The child is simply regulating itself by speaking their guidance aloud. So the child will tell itself, don't eat the cookie, don't run down the hall, don't, you know, uh, do this, don't do that, and then it's replicating the words that the mother or father say to it. And then eventually, over time, the, the private speech becomes internal speech. The child doesn't bother saying it aloud. It just says it in its mind, and it becomes inner chatter, thought. So the, the formation of human thought starts in social speech with other people that we're simply repeating. And yet, interestingly enough, as we move through life as adults, we tend to take all of our thoughts as mine. We don't realize that they all have their essential, we can trace them back into the utterances of things that our parents said to us. So it never actually started as an authentic expression of self. It was always an external form of guidance. When the child is alone it, and it feels overwhelmed, it, generally really tends to over-rely on uh, private speech replicating the parents' instructions. And then eventually what happens is over time this private inner guiding uh, words that we interject or internalize becomes more and more harsh over, over adult life. What happens is as we socialize we become introduced to interactions and uh, encounters that are far more cutthroat than even the environment of our family. <laughs> so, for example, uh, the child is introduced to school peers and to teachers who are less uh, patient at times, and then to all forms of interactions with other kids in the schoolyard. And it sees that if it acts in, an off, in a spontaneous, free way, that it'll be rejected. So it relies on that inner voice saying, oops, 
I shouldn't say this, I shouldn't do that, they don't like me if I'll do that, I have to seem more confident, or I have to seem more uh, funny, or I have to seem more intelligent, or I have to be more something if I'm going to get love from other people. So it's this kind of voice in our head that pushes us into a shape or presentation that we believe other people will approve of. Because deep down inside, there's this fear. All human beings have this great, we're pack animals and we have a terrifying fear of being rejected. That's the hum, human being's greatest underlying fear. All of our anxieties boil down to the fear of some form of rejection. On top of that, in these encounters, we tend to internalize the most negative assessments that other people give us. The human brain has a tendency, or human mind has a tendency to go to what's known as negativity bias. Negativity bias is instilled by evolution, and it's essentially the human predilection to give five times the neural weight of negative statements and negative events over positive. There was a study by Gottman, the couples therapist, who found that for every one negative experience in a relationship, people need five positive experiences to feel that the relationship is worthwhile. That's because in our amygdalas, well over 70% of the neural structure is dedicated to uh, memorizing and encoding frightening negative experiences. In terms of evolution, it's better that we remember all the people that were unsafe or all the things that led to some kind of threat than it is for us to remember positive experiences. Because evolution basically prioritizes keeping us over alive, over us feeling good about ourselves. We all are born in brains that tend to give a lot of weight to all those words that people say, oh, you're so touchy, you're so sensitive, you're so depressed, you're so anxious, you're so uh, this or to that. And we tend to hear and really interject that and it becomes part of that inner critic. And then not only does that happen, but in educational systems we are graded and we're given grades and we're given the illusion that there's some kind of objective way to classify human beings. Some of us are A's and some of us are F's. It creates this delusion that human beings can be summarized in terms of a, a limited degree of attributes and, and skills. And then after education, we're dumped into the welcoming arms of capitalism, which incentivizes by fear, period. And capitalism likes to pretend that it incentivizes uh, creativity and, and going to work and being a model citizen and, and uh, performing. It likes to pretend it incentivizes by rewards, but it doesn't. It incentivizes by the fear of poverty and falling through the, the, the cracks and winding up with no health care and winding up essentially and without resources. There was a recent study by Harvard that showed that in the last 50 years there's been virtually no upward mobility in America. In fact, of the, 75, of the people that are born in poverty or lower class, 75% will wind up back in poverty. The middle class, while 18% can hope for moving up to upper class, 
almost 30% can look forward to winding up lower class by the end of their lives. In other words, you're much more likely to wind up with far less than your parents. So it internal, it validates the inner fear, the inner criticism, the inner uh, terror that keeps telling us that we have to do this, that, or the other if we're going to survive. So it's made up of shoulds, which are these uh, comparisons with imaginary others. That story that says, I should be more, uh, I should work more, I should exercise more, I should be more caring, I should meditate more. Every endeavor you undertake becomes vulnerable to shoulds, the projection that there are this they out there in the world who are never anxious, always confident, always effortlessly jump out of bed in the morning with a smile on their face and rush off to work and are happy and you're falling short of them. Because you've learned over your life that as, as, a, a, as a coping strategy in childhood and early life, having that fear-driven inner critic is actually, it spurs us on. If nothing else, it creates a lot of terror and it creates a lot of action at first. But I'll talk about all of the deficits and why as adult life it's important to abandon any form of reliance upon the inner critic. If you look at the neural underpinnings of that inner critical judgmental voice in your head that worries what other people think about you, that wonders how other people perceive you, and that tells you that in some way you should be producing, doing better, making more money, funnier, at parties, you should be the life of it. The neural underpinnings is that there's a circuit that starts in the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain, which is activated whenever we're in a situation that's new, i.e. novel, or we're in situations where we could potentially be rejected, like social situations, parties, interactions. And that amygdala lights, and it says fear, 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 and it activates tension in the body via the uh, vagal vagus nerve, and then up through another ner uh, nerve center, the insula reports, oh my god, I'm tense, I'm anxious, I'm worried. And then the left hemisphere with Broca and Wernicke and all the language structures and the ventral medial, which is the part of your brain that worries about you and what's going to happen to you, and then the dorsal lateral, which is inhibition, they all fire up and they say, oh my god, I feel nervous. I ha there has to be a reason I feel nervous. It's possibly because I'm not doing good enough in the world. I have to change, become better, do something else. It tries to figure out why we're feeling this way and come up with a quick, easy solution to it. Most of the time, our anxiety, our fear is in no way alleviated by the inner critic. The inner critic is just a storyteller that sits up there and rattles out instructions trying to distract us from the physical somatic fear we're feeling in situations. The Buddha paid a lot of attention to the inner critic. He said that of the four kinds of suffering which are associated with attaching to beliefs, the most pernicious, more pernicious than attaching to our addictions to pleasures, our beliefs about the way the world should be. The most pernicious form of clinging 
is clinging to the stories we tell about ourselves, the way we believe we should be, the way we're falling short of the way we should be, the deficits that we perceive we have, the story of self-growth and the things we think we need to achieve to be worthy of love or kindness in the world or success. It's called Atava Upadana and um, Sakaya Didi. And the Buddha said that of all the traits, it's the very last trait that gets put aside in the, in the movement towards enlightenment. So it's pretty damn sticky. Well, after you give over your addictions and your habits and all the, you know, your, all the negative emotions... <laughs> that's possible, you know, you don't get rid of them, but you, you get them in a, in a place where you don't act out on them. Well, after you've done almost all of those, those spiritual endeavors, you're still stuck with that little story. Yeah, I really should be more spiritual. I really should be meditating more. You know, you're really falling short of that other monk sitting over there. Really? What's he doing? Look how, how calm he looks. You're really not calm. Inside... They're all calm. You're sitting there, your brain's wanting, yeah, you're right. So that inner, you know, that inner voice compares us with other people's externals. We project onto them this, this early belief based on the idea that our parents initially instilled and was instilled in school that there are these perfect they that are always happy, confident, doing well, and that if we're not, there's something wrong with us. Interestingly enough, the Buddha taught that uh, in every life, in an addition to uh, old age, sickness, death, and separation from loved ones, there's another form of suffering, he says, that will happen no matter what we want or no matter how hard we try. And that's called essentially not getting what we want, frustrations, setbacks, difficulties. It happens to everyone. And the Buddha and the Salata Sutta goes on to say that if we only realized how universal difficulties, failure, making mistakes are, we wouldn't be have we wouldn't have as so as much suffering, dukkha as he called it, as we have. But instead what we do is we take it personally. We go, Why me? Why am I the one who has anxiety? Why am I the one who has depression? Why am I the one who feels lonely? Why am I the one who uh, feels unloved? Why am I... So we add on to the inevitable difficulties and challenges of life that are universal. We add this story that it's not universal, that it's somehow all about me. That other people don't experience... Um, overwhelm, confusion, self-doubt, I'm the one. And so what that does is it makes us cut off. We stop talking about our inner experience, our emotions, our feelings. And the less we talk about it, the more we become convinced that there's something wrong about it because we're not getting the normalizing that other people do. When we talk about our experience and we say aloud at work when some, on a Tuesday and you go into work and somebody says, how are you? And you go, fine. You don't get any regulation and normalization. But if for once we went into work and we said, they said, how are you doing today? Keeping you busy? And you go, no, I hate it here. I wanted to sleep in. 
I had anxiety last night. I had insomnia. I was up until two. I don't want to do my taxes. Some days I just want to go home and eat ice cream. If we ever did that, the other person would go, oh, yeah, that happened to me yesterday. But because we become increasingly ashamed or resistant or scared of rejection of that one person out of 20 who won't recognize our emotions because of that terror of rejection, we keep it to ourselves. We withhold the emotions, the feelings, the inner states. And because we withhold it, there's no one saying, yeah, me too. And when there's no one saying, yeah, me too, we begin to hold and greet and experience those emotions as about me, unique, mine, personal, not universal, not part of the human experience, something wrong about me. There are a couple of other uh, drawbacks to the inner critic the more we rely on it, we eventually in our adult life reach a point where we've never really seen ourselves for who we really are outside of the scrim and filter of criticism. There's always this overlay of there's something wrong with me when we, when we try to connect and have a sense of what our lives are about, what we've accomplished, what direction we would like to go. We see it through this filter of deficit or should be doing more, rather from an appreciative, caring, compassionate perspective. The more authoritative our inner critic, the more it flattens life into a very simplistic, single interpretation. And the Buddha, if anything, was always against single interpretations. His phrase, Yathabhuta Nanadasana, which means seeing life as it really is, he said, required constant constant reinvestigation and re-looking at things from different angles and getting insight from other people and not trusting any single interpretation. But the inner critic uh, essentially com reduces the complexity of life to a single interpretation and it's through that single interpretation that it becomes a kind of spell, a kind of hypnosis that we live in where there's no real dialogue no real um, or no real uh, balancing with other points of view. We simply listen to that voice and go, oh, <coughs> yikes. When we have a unchecked inner critic or an inner critic that is, uh, sometimes inner critics, by the way, uh, are referred to as a superego. That's Freud's term for it, the socializing inner comparing voice that posits the way that people should be and they're always different than the way we are. The, when we have too developed an inner critic, a self-conscious judging, narrating where we're falling short or where, where it's going wrong, then we develop as a compensation um, a kind of corollary quality that gives us some, a way to get some peace from the inner critic. Some of us, it's the inner nihilist, the part of us that is so tired of being pushed around by the inner perfectionist, always has to be on their game, always has to look good, that will go home, lock the door, smoke pot, eat ice cream, turn on Netflix for hours, and just completely give the middle finger to the inner critic. And they work as a team together. 
we drive ourselves, criticize ourselves, try to look good to the world to deserve some form of love. And then as a corollary, we have the addict, the, um, the, uh, the part of us that just wants to get drunk, get high, buy shit we don't need, do all the stuff that will get us, you know, out of that inner criticism. Other people will have the inner grandiosity, which is the fantasist that feels above other people that as a compensation to the inner critic tells us that we're far smarter, that, you know, has fantasies of being rewarded with endless admiration and attention when if only they discovered that one song I wrote four years ago. So either way, the, grand, the inner grandiose or the inner nihilist, uh, if we try to address those without addressing the inner critic, all we'll be stuck with is, again, mired in that feeling of not amounting to enough. So if we want to address any of our secret private addictions, our shopaholism, our binge eating, our getting stoned secretly, or whatever it is we do when behind closed doors when we don't have to manage what other people think about us, if we want to manage that, we can't address those first. We have to address the thing that's creating those addictions, which is the voice that's com constantly comparing us with some mythological better version of ourselves. When we have an overly developed inner tyrant, we become overly reliant on safe choices because we know that every time we take a risk, we're embracing the possibility of failure and even more inner criticism and even more stress and even more self-denigration. So over time, people stop learning new skills, not so much because they're even scared of what other people will think, but because we're terrified of what we'll experience internally when we try to do something new. When I was in my uh, 40s, I learned to skateboard, which was an experience that required sucking in public. <laughs> but And as horrible as it was having 10-year-olds whizzing by me, laughing at me, what was even worse, though, was the, the inner voice going, you should have done this earlier. What, how ridiculous is it now? How un-adult is it now to learn something that you've always wanted to? You've missed the boat. You look ridiculous. That was actually creating the state of being that was far more unpleasant than having some teens laugh at me. Possibly, though, the greatest drawback of all of the inner critic is that it obscures the healthier forms of incentivizing and uh, 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 encouraging and motivating ourselves. There was a study by, in Nature Neuroscience called The Dissociable Effects of Punishment and Reward. And what they found was negative reinforcement, especially in the form of self-shaming, self-criticism, self-judgment, or uh, withholding from oneself. Negative reinforcement, the only thing it does is it leads to a, an initial change in behavior that almost invariably over a very short period of time we revert back to the original behavior. So 
For instance, if you binge eat on your own and you say, okay, every time I binge eat, I'm going to charge myself $10 for every cookie I eat. Well, for a short period of time, you would stop doing that. But over a longer period of time, you would revert. You'd just, it wouldn't be cookies. It would be ice cream or you'd start, uh, you'd start uh, uh, blacking out, dissociating or getting rid of the uh, anxiety by watching TV or shopping or you'd essentially transfer the addiction. But it would in no way lead to any form of lasting change that was useful. On the other hand, they found in their study that positive reinforcement, rewarding oneself, focusing attention on the, the positive endeavors we do, no matter how little we do of it, uh, those changes do last and do sink in and do make for real substantial changes. So for instance, the classic mistake at the beginning of the year, people come rushing into Dharma punks, and they're like, I want to meditate this year. And so they set an impossible amount for somebody who's new. They say, I'm going to meditate for 30 minutes every day. And then the first day they don't, they're, what's the matter with me? Everybody else is doing it. There must be something the matter with me. Eh, fuck it. I'm just going to get stoned. Fuck that. <laughs> the completely other approach is essentially set no minimum. No matter how little you meditate, feel good about it, talk about it, focus attention on it, note it, even uh, acknowledge it, be a bore, write on Facebook, I meditated for two minutes. It really doesn't matter. If it's positive reinforcement over time, it will actually lead to lasting ingrained behaviors. At the end of the day, the inner critic simply breeds inner rebellion. It leads to resignation. It leads to self-sabotage. And while the criticism remains, the behaviors just revert to the same exact behaviors that we've always been in. Meanwhile, the self-rewarding, acknowledging, waiting until after we do something to then give ourselves a little reward is what actually leads to lasting behavioral changes. So the first key then to change and start the revolution against the inner tyrant is to reward yourself. And not just reward yourself, but make sure you reward yourself for uh, not results, but just for any effort you put in. There was a study by Carol Dweck and Claudia Mueller in the Journal of Psychology and Social, no, Journal of Personality and Social Psychology of many a large group of fifth graders, and they found that the parents who rewarded the fifth graders for their grades, the fifth graders subsequently did worse and worse on tests and actually developed conflicts with their teachers when they wouldn't get good grades. They, when they would be faced with new challenges they couldn't do, they would become resentful. The children that were rewarded for effort, not grades, were the ones that actually did better on subsequent tests and when they encountered a problem they couldn't solve on their own, they were more likely to ask for help and more actually to view it as a positive challenge. So when you decide to make any substantial uh, uh, change in your life, no criticism, 
no judgment, no bottom lines, and any amount of time you do it, even if you don't write or do or complete a single thing, you still reward yourself. Because over time, associating that activity with positive reinforcement will make you want to do it more. I signed a agreement to write a uh, book with a Buddhist publisher that kindly asked me to write one. And I was originally like, how am I going to write 60,000 words? No human being has ever written that amount. And, uh, I realized after the first two days that judging my output was not working. And so I decided that no matter how little I wrote, each day I would reward myself by doing something I really enjoyed. Not expensive, just stuff I, I really like to do that's healthy. I would go out for a walk. I would uh, go to, there's a little restaurant in my uh, neighborhood that makes these delicious vegan bowls. I would. Uh, you know, spend some time on my favorite website reading about, uh, one of my favorite websites is called Crime Time Preview. It talks about all the really dark detective shows that are coming on. I really, oh, this sounds really dark and good. So, but I wait until, I wait until after I did a little bit of work, no matter how bad I thought it was, I'd still reward myself. I wrote the fucking book in five weeks. I handed it in, they were like, what the fuck? You had a year to write this. What the hell is this? And I was like, it was so much fun. You want me to write another one? I don't know. You know. So I went from not re really being a writer to someone who wrote a book in five weeks. That's not a brag. I'm not good at it. I just did it. And I loved it because I, was, I refused to criticize, judge, evaluate. I just did it and enjoyed the process and made sure that I was rewarding myself with, a, with appreciation. Um, two, it's really important to learn how to recognize the inner critic and not instead push it away and not let it simply uh, not listen with fascination to what it has to say. When the inner critic comes up, recognize it. If you have a name for it, that's great. But pay attention to how it feels in your body, how it feels in your breath, and then subtly begin to relax the underlying physicality that's beneath the storytelling critic. You will find that, if you remember, if you recall from early in the talk, the inner critic is part of a neural circuit that is an add-on to fear or anxiety. If you release, relieve, address the somatic physiological state beneath the criticism, the criticism, the judgment, the unending worry and catastrophizing will begin to alleviate. Because if the, if the somatic experience is addressed, then it no longer needs to distract you from anything. So feel the body, give it a name, Breathe in a really relaxed way. Three, whatever the inner critic tells you, have a practice and place where you connect and report it to another human being. You will find that if anybody ever said aloud to you what your mind tells you, you would find that person to be a repetitive bore. And a cruel repetitive bore at that very often. Most of us would never tolerate somebody saying, 
What's the matter with you? You slept in late today. You're not getting anything done with your life. Who does that? Who does that? If you were at a party and somebody came up to you and said, there's probably nobody here who like you and want to, and that, that joke you just said, boy, what, that, did that go flat? You should never tell a joke again ever in your life. In fact, it was a mistake for you ever to go out in public. <laughs> when you're here at Dharma Pumps and you come in, and if somebody sat next to you, poked you in the shoulder and said, don't say anything to anyone because they'll think you're strange. These Buddhists, they're always peaceful and they'll think you're kind of needy, so you better keep it in and look spiritual because if you ever say anything, they'll think there's something wrong with you. You get what I'm saying? You look at that person, you go, what the fuck's the matter with you? But if it's in up here, it's like, oh, okay. I hope they don't talk to me. So report it. Disclosing natural laws are not only what our brains are telling us, but our emotions, our feelings. The more you disclose, the more it's very, the more difficult it becomes to believe that any inner experience is mine or personal or different or unique. And when other people naturalize an experience, it's very hard to feel there's something wrong with us. Finally, practicing cultivating positive reflections. It's affirmations do not work for a while in, in, in self-help groups. There was this idea that sitting around looking in a mirror, I am lovable, I'm smart, people want to be with me. The inner critic hears that and goes, what the fuck is this? <laughs> That's the most, that's the most inbred thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> so what we want to do is instead actually show ourselves the time that we've actually um, developed skills, done actions that have been of benefit to others, taken risks and not been shot down. So it has to be built on actual reflections on actual experience. Your inner critic will not be able to act, argue with that. So hold in your mind images of the times you took risks and instead of being ridiculed, shamed, or failing miserably, you survived. It actually turned out to be okay. That instills the confidence and the neural ballast to counteract the inner critic. There are other tools I could go into. <coughs> Cognitive-based trial therapy has tools that I use. I get people in counseling to write down the three constant criticisms that they give themselves. And then I ask them to defend themselves with three statements of why they are perfect as they are. They don't need to change. They don't need to grow. There's nothing wrong with them. And then I do a magic trick. I say, look at the three criticisms and you'll find that all of them are based on shoulds. Some kind of comparing yourself with people that you've never met or don't exist or some kind of expectation that you think people should be. Whereas the inner defense counsel in your head always uses actual experiences, actual behaviors, actual things you've done. 
So the inner criticism is always based on a essentially a speculation, whereas the inner defense that comes to our side is actually based on real facts. And that should teach us something about the inner critic. It's very, very rarely based on those cringeworthy mistakes in life. It's generally far more based on some arbitrary social belief that projects some form of perfection or ease onto imaginary beings that we're falling short of. But anyway, let's do a meditation now to put some of these tools into practice. And I thank you for listening. Okay. So being really comfortable and try not to look like a meditator. So get in uh, whatever is yourself sitting in a really comfortable position where you feel really relaxed, really uh, just don't try to be the Buddha. Be yourself in a really, you're just sitting and being present, closing the eyes. If you don't like to close the eyes, look at the ground in front of you and try to remove the fixation with sight. Sight is the single sense port more than even hearing or smell that pulls us out of body awareness, out of internal awareness. So we want to abandon for a little while sight and focus on the other senses. The sense of hearing, you can listen to the sounds in the room. And let's take three breaths together just to relax the body and create a mind that's more aware of the internal landscape. So take a nice full in-breath through the nose and as you do so, if you like, lift up the shoulders like you're trying to touch your ears. And just holding those shoulders up for an extended length, just feeling them. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, drop the shoulders as heavily as they can. And if it feels right for you, gently pull them back to make it the chest more open and comfortable. Whatever feels right for your body. And the second in-breath, pull in the belly while you breathe in through the nose. So you're trying to hold in your belly taut as it can, and then as we breathe out through the mouth, a nice, long, relaxed out-breath and a soft belly, really nice, round, soft Buddha belly. And for the third in-breath, tightening the toes, the buttocks, the fists, and squinching the face muscles to an ugly little pinched face that you never want anybody to ever see. And nobody will because their eyes are closed and your face is pinched. And then breathing out and just relax and let your jaw hang loose. And then see if you can uh, soften the micro muscles around the eyes. And then with the eyes, settling the eyes behind the eyelids so that they feel 
but they're not darting about. There's no longer anything for them to keep track of. So just remind them that they can rest. Now we'll just for a little while develop a state of present time awareness and you can do that by having an open spacious mind that just pays attention to all the sensations that are present. For example, hearing the sound from the street, and feeling the contact with the cushion you're sitting on, feeling the clothes in your body, noticing the flickering of the closed eye visuals behind the eyelids. Notice any shifts of feeling in the body, so if suddenly the body feels comfortable or uncomfortable, heavy and tired or energetic. So that's one approach, just paying attention to all the actual sensations that are occurring. And the only thing you don't want to do is go into any virtual reality, i.e. fantasy, thought, memory, internal images and little movies in the mind. You can think of thoughts as like those Netflix movies that want you to click on them. And you don't click on them. You just see, oh, that's a movie I really don't want to watch. What I'm going to eat for dinner, I can put off seeing that movie until later. So just allow all the little movies that want your attention to be there, the thought about what happened today, the thought about what might happen tomorrow, and they're all just there, but you're not going to click on any of them. And if you do, you just close them down by reconnecting with the body, the sounds of the room, feeling of clothes. Some people prefer to have a concentration practice and that's very often using the breath. So you can find the sensations of your body breathing in and out, in generally some form of exhalation and out some, uh, sorry, in some form of expansion and out some form of physical contraction in the chest or belly. Or perhaps it's the feeling of air moving through the tip of the nose, in and out. And to stay with the breath, it's often a very good idea to count inhalations and exhalations. So while you're breathing in, think one. While you're breathing out, think two. While you're breathing in, think three. While you're breathing out, think four. And then when you get to in-breaths, labeled number five, then you start counting back down. Four on the out, three on the in, two on the out. So you're counting from one to five and back down. Every time your mind drifts away, 
we greet that with nothing but kindness, no judgment, no criticism. We put into practice in our meditation what we want to do in the rest of our life, which is we abandon the critical, judgmental quality, and instead we reward ourselves for waking up and bringing the attention back to what's going on in the present moment. So there's no role for any judgment, comparison, evaluation at all.
So at this point, get a feeling of what your body is like, just an overview. Does your body feel relaxed or tense? Does your breath feel full on the in-breath? Does it feel long or shallow and short on the out-breath? What areas of the front of the body are tight or relaxed, especially the chest and the belly? the throat and the muscles of the face. So just get a sense of the physiological state that you're in. Does the mind feel settled or jumpy? Your awareness or attention, does it bounce about or does it feel present? So whatever state you're in right now, we'll call it your baseline state. And then what I'd like you to do is bring to mind the image of some recent, hopefully not too painful, just a minor setback, disappointment, frustration, anything that might activate the inner critic, the voice in your head that might point a finger, tell you that you should have done better, that this is the way things always go. It has some kind of a negative view, negative spin. So just hold it and just (coughs) invite up, rather than wait for it to attack on its own, invite up the inner critic and if You want, you can even let it make one denouncement. I should have known better. And then see if there's been any change in the body. There's any Part of your body feel tighter? Does the breath change when you tell yourself you'll never, you're always falling behind or you'll never do this or that's always getting messed up, whatever. It's telling you just focus on the body and the breath and just notice what it's like in the body beneath the critic. So you might notice a slight, ever so slight tension in the belly or tightness in the throat or maybe a heaviness behind the eyes. If you look enough, you'll see over time when the inner critic is there, you'll find some somatic physiological expression of sadness, disappointment, fear, anxiety. And then see if you can, just allowing the inner critic to be there, but focus your attention on relaxing the body, addressing the emotions and feelings that arise when you think about this setback. 
this loss, this disappointment, this snafu, frustration. We don't need to argue with the inner critic. We just need to address the actual emotions beneath it that it's concealing. Okay, put aside the reflection and the frustration and the inner critic. And now I'd like you to bring to mind a reflection of a time in life when you took a risk, when you pushed yourself to develop a new skill or moved to a different city or to took a vacation on your own or went up to people you didn't know and became introduced and friendly. Any experience in your life where you pushed yourself outside of your zone of ease into you took us a, a form of a gamble or a risk and just show yourself through the reflection, just holding the image. That you can break out of any ingrained patterns, tendencies that the critical self-denying quality would keep you locked within. And just let it sink into your heart, this truth, this actual evidence that you can take risks, embrace life, that it will not necessarily turn out poorly, that you will not get rejected, abandoned, criticized. <laughs> Let that image fade.
fade and bring to mind another image of something that you do that benefits others. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It could be the time you call up some friend who's depressed, connect with a parent or family member that just to give them connection, a sense of care. Perhaps something you do in your life on a daily basis that is a benefit to others in your work or just any activity you do that is not for your own better benefit but for others. And just let this sink in as ballast against any inner accusations that you level against yourself. Let your deeper emotional circuits know the truth that you do matter. And whenever any voice in your mind that tells you you should be doing better, you should change, you should improve, you should don't buy into that narrative, just replay this image. While there's nothing wrong with growth or change, it should never be done from under the tyranny of should, just under the want to, but never under the should. If you want to grow, that's fine. If you want to develop a new skill, if you want to do anything in your life, that's fine, but never from a should. So when you're ready, you can slowly open your eyes and look at the ground in front of you. Just allow the light and the color to sink in and then just slowly, slowly look up and around the room, but see if you can maintain awareness of your body, your breath, the feeling that you're in, so that you're not in any way allowing sight to dominate your awareness that you also feel the body and feel the breath. 